Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number seven. I'm here with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. Hi, Scott. Hi, how you doing? Doing great. How about you? Doing great. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah, we were talking uh, about the show, and this is funny. We were actually talking about we should record what we talk about before the show because it's very interesting sometimes, and we, we have a lot of fun. And Scott, the first thing I asked Scott was what's new, and you talked about a new hard drive that Seagate made. It's a solid-state drive. Why don't you go over some of those points about that drive, Scott? Yeah, uh, you know, this is you know kind of the thing where manufacturers of hard drives and stuff haven't really ventured into doing all the solid-state stuff. So you'll see that um, most of the new uh, solid-state hard drives out there are from vendors that really didn't make a hard drive before. There's there's a few exceptions that that obviously like Toshiba, Samsung, but uh, but normally Western Digital and Seagate did not have any solid-state hard drives. And so uh, apparently Seagate has made one of their first um, solid-state hard drives. And it, it's not it's not really a consumer product. It's not like put it in a laptop or anything. It's more like a server based. It's a ba- it's a looks like a blade server. It's a very large uh, ar- array basically, and it's uh, around 200 gigs. But it's an extremely fast device. Um, th- this particular device is measured in uh, operations per second, and this thing does 30,000 read operations per second and 25,000 write operations per second. But this is meant for um, like high-speed banking transactions in places where you actually have something that does, you know, 10,000 operations per second trying to uh, save bank records or something uh, as opposed to dealing with in solid-state drives. To, to kind of give you a comparison, the fastest hard drive on the market right now is the uh, Intel X20. It's a solid-state drive. It's the Intel X25. It has a uh, cache and and it's a solid-state device. And uh, basically, to give you a comparison between the Seagate device and how fast it is and this Intel device, is this Intel device only does 5,000 reads uh, per second. So uh, its operations per second is um, you know, one-sixth of what it is on this new Seagate device. Uh, but this is probably an adventure where you'll now see Seagate coming down uh, – uh, down the stream later on with a consumer-based product. So uh, Western Digital already bought a company that makes consumer-based products, and so they're working on a solid-state device with the Western Digital name on it. Hmm. Cool. Well, so when when do you think? Well, like you like you were saying, the Intel device is one sixth the speed of this new device. Do you think uh, when do you think that consumer devices will be as fast as this one that Seagate just made? Well, I mean, obviously, Intel's approaching that by uh, adding cache and RAM and stuff to their device and and doing some optimization. Um, so, you know, the way things seem to be jumping because you know this is this is already uh, the Intel device itself is already you know like four thousand times faster than a standard hard drive or something because like a Seagate uh, a Seagate SCSI hard drive yeah. does one hundred and eighty operations per second. So. The solid-state device is almost 5,000 times faster. So I would say, you know, within a year or two, we're probably going to be jumping up, uh, you know, two, three, four times the speed of what we are now. Hmm. Wow. And to put that into perspective, like how fast, like if I just take a normal 7,200 RPM drive that I have here, like a SATA drive, how fast does that compare to the Intel? And, how, and then how fast does that compare to the Seagate? Well, the the Intel uh, X25 is 5,000 operations per second, and a standard 7,200 RPM hard drive is 90 operations per second. That is amazing. 
So those are some big differences between between those. And you know, SCSI being around one of the longest, um, you know, it only being 180 operations per second. You can see SCSI's already faster than some of our fastest uh, IDE slash SATA hard drives as well. Right. So. Uh, it you know people keep making those comments you know why is SCSI still exists why is it out there and you know it has a lot to do with its performance and its capabilities for servers and m- multiple th- operations per second yeah it's, um, it's twice as fast right right yes at least twice as fast right well how much is the Intel X, what is the X twenty five you said yeah uh, I, I mean I think it's affordable now I, I mean I don't think that we're we're you know talking you know maybe four or five hundred dollars for one of the standard, maybe 128s or something, but uh, you know, really, size has become the big deal. There are some newer solid-state devices. You can get up to uh, one terabyte for around two and a half grand or so right now, um, and there are 512 gig drives that are going to be around 1,200 dollars or so. So the price is coming down as we are getting bigger drives. Um, I would but, never, I know, would never spend that much for for a drive right now for that, just because you know, well, you, you know, it the technology is cruising along, it's going to come down like so fast. Yeah, but really think about it like this: like for instance, let's say that you're a photographer and that you like to go climbing mountains or or something, and you are really concerned about your laptop because you'd like to bring it with you so that you can work on raw files or at least view them while you're on the road. Or even if you have one of these new, like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a color space. Uh, it's called a color space UDMA. It's a little uh, handheld device that looks at raw files. It's basically like a little Linux computer that fits in your hand, but it's just got one screen. And let's say you're climbing up this mountain and you want to store your files on this device. It uses a hard drive internally to store it. And movement with a hard drive is always really bad, especially if you're like a hiker or doing something and you're trying to use this device. So wouldn't it be more beneficial to you if you had a solid-state device that you would put in there, even if it was just for this you know, one year before the price drops, it would be very functional for you to have a 512-gig device that's solid-state that's not going to be affected by you climbing this mountain and losing your pictures. It would, but I mean, like you know, look at iPod hard drives. They're 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 still spinning hard drives in there, and haven't they constructed them in a way now that they're very, uh, you know, like the damage they don't get damaged as much. I mean, I mean, teenagers run around with these things. That's worse than climbing a mountain. Well, they have, but also if you notice that they've kept the capacity lower than what the current capacities are that are on the market by, you know, basically giving them more space so that the heads aren't as flying as close to the platters and things like that. So they've uh, made some modifications to because it's a Samsung that primarily sends sells the drives to, uh, you know, for the, for those devices. But that's one of the other things too is as we've been heading into the solid state where you know the i the the iTouch and the iPhone and things like that are all solid state devices. Um, that's where you're durable. That's why they don't have in that cell phone. They don't have a a spinning disc. Right, right. So, but one of the ways that the iPod does it is it caches it to RAM. So it reads a whole song or you know multiple songs in advance, caches them to RAM, knowing that those are going to be the next ones in your queue that it's going to request. So then it spins the drive down again. I see. Uh, I see. So it might not be spinning when you're like exercising with the thing. Right. Exactly. It only spins long enough for it to read three or four megs. So it's, you know, your, your three or four megs is going to be one minute and it only is going to take it, you know, 10 seconds to spin up, you know, five seconds or six seconds more to read three or four megs and then it's done. I didn't even know that. That's cool. So, okay. So now I can see how your photographer situation would work out. 
Well, you know, the photography situation is is more com, you know, it's even more complicated than that because when you're taking a picture and you're using, you know, these high def cameras and stuff, let's say you got a, a 12 megapixel camera, uh, you're taking, you know, a picture is going to be 10 megs or so in raw format. So it's going to be 12, 12 megapixel in raw format. And when you're copying those things, you're copying three or 400 of those, you're easily talking six, eight, 10 gigs right. in one sitting just for one, one memory stick where it might have only taken you three minutes to take those shots. Hmm. Now, you said you're, are you a professional photographer? Or? I'm heading in that direction. I'm, I'm like semi-professional right now, yeah. So what, what, is, what do you use, Flash? Uh, well, obviously for the camera itself, I mean, I'm using a Nikon, so uh, I'm using SSDs for all the memory sticks and stuff there. But, uh, you know, I have a color UDMA, so I will I basically store all my stuff on a solid state disk for short terms until I can copy it back to a full fledged computer. I see. Hm, neat. Neat. OK. Um, another thing you brought up, Scott, was this I.O. drive. And what's that all about? It's, the, it's a new technology, huh? Yeah, the uh, I.O. drive is a. Uh, it basically is a drive that um, is a solid-state device that's on a card, so that basically you're eliminating the connect connectors and trying to talk to the motherboard through a slower connection. And so the I/O drive's purpose is to be a very high-speed, say, a server-based device, and it's made by Fusion I/O. And so they have a couple of different solutions, but basically um, it's going to be like flash on a card. And it's going to have in what it looks like is a RISC processor. So it has its own processor, and it's able to process its own data as fast as possible and then feed that directly over the PCI Express bus or something uh, so that you can get that data faster. So and, when um, you say card, you're talking about a PCIe card. Yes, PCIe right. card. And in this particular case, these are it's a really fast drive because, uh, like we were talking about a minute ago with the Seagate drive, it was uh, 30,000. Uh, I/O operations per second. Right. This this uh, their highest end device from I/O drive is about eighty thousand uh, operations per second. Yeah. So it crushes the, even the Seagate. Yeah, it's uh you know four or five times faster than the Seagate. Um, obviously, the problem is size because the Seagate drive is supposed to be upwards of two hundred gigs, and uh, the I/O the largest I/O drive that I see is an eighty gig. Oh, I see. It's got a uh, recommendation here from Steve Wozniak. I'm on the website now. He says, "Yeah, I, I thought he was an investor in the company." Oh, uh, the tech. He says the technology marketplace has not seen such capacity for innovation, innovation and radical transformation since the mainframe computer was replaced by the home computer. Yeah, he must. He must be. <laughs> yeah, he, he must have a stake in there. Neat. That's cool. That's good to talk to you about new technology, especially since you know I, I like I said before I do a lot of. Uh, video editing and HD video editing to boot and that just there's bottlenecks all over your system so you're always trying to find something faster and though these drives are faster you need I need a lot of uh, capacity like we were talking before about before right. and um, so it's cool to see the innovation and then you just kind of got to wait for the drives to get bigger you know right yeah I know capacity is going to always be the problem and that's the you know obviously the driving force behind every uh, every device that has been manufactured for portable use or or you know laptops or whatever it's all about getting more capacity in a smaller amount of space yeah yep and i think it's just gonna get crazy how how fast and how small things are going to get in the future 
right. Last show we were talking about, we were going over your speech. And uh, what I want to talk about this show is finish off what we were, what we were talking about about your speech at uh, Freaknik. And then also hit into some points about MHDD, which actually is not does not stand for my hard drive died. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a coincidence. Know, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, uh, funny because I thought of the company's name and then later on was using the tool and I said something on a website somewhere and you know someone almost kind of got up in arms about it, like that I called my company that because of the product and um, <laughs> it was it was completely uh, an accident. Yeah, I. I you know, my guys, the people listening to my show are figuring it out too. And they're like, well, is that what it stands for? And nope. Um, actually, I don't even know what it stands for. Do you? Um, yeah, it's like a Maysoft's data diagnostics tool or something. Okay. It's, um, it's, it's, it, the M stands for Maysoft. And that's well, one of the guys or somebody that was involved in development or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll finish off your speech here because that was good about, um, data diag- or hard drive diagnostics and uh, wh- wh- how to attack basically trying to figure out what's wrong with the drive and getting the data off of it. And then using that tool, using MHDD as a great software tool to see if your drive is bad. Um, I'm getting great reviews from a lot of people that I know who are using it for, based off your recommendation. And uh, they, you know, they requested that you talk about it a little bit more so uh, could kind of go over some of the main features and, and different things about it. So, uh, sure. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastic tool. I'm happy to do that. Cool. All right. We were talking when we ended off last time, I think we were talking about desoldering. Um, say you had a burnt chip on, on your hard drive circuit, the circuit board that's on your hard drive. If that has a burnt chip or if you want to replace a chip, we talked about, let me see what the name of that thing was again. Chip quick. It was a de- right. desoldering kit. And right. what that basically does is it allows you to quickly desolder like um, ICs off of the uh, actual circuit board for your ha- your hard drive? Yeah, it's um it's a, a, a low melting point solder. And basically this low melting point solder, you will basically uh, use a lot of flux and their solder and you will surround the chip and because it's a low melting point, it also keeps all the other solder and everything that it's touching uh, liquid molten for a lot longer. So you can actually just kind of keep rubbing around the area of the chip with a cheap soldering gun where before we might have had to have, you know, this $3,000 air rework stations or something instead. Um, you can use this cheap soldering gun and just keep using chip quick and do it in a circle around the chip until you just basically can remove the chip. And it doesn't take more than a minute or two. And even people who really haven't soldered and stuff before, it it works very quickly and, and very well. Have you used it personally? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I use it. And uh, I do – when I teach the class and stuff, we also do a lab where – while people are doing uh, their hard drive rebuilds and stuff, that they can come up to the desk and sit down and actually practice with the with the chip quick stuff to actually do some desoldering. So, um, yeah, I, I use it quite often. I do have an air rework station, so obviously for you know some complicated stuff, it's going to be a lot easier to do with the air rework station. But in a pinch, the chip quick stuff works great, and it certainly saves you from having to buy an expensive uh, air rework station for most of the stuff uh, there's some good videos on youtube also actually some of the best videos i've seen on youtube about soldering and how to solder correctly uh they've got them out there for free and uh, they are fantastic videos um that will teach you a lot about soldering correctly yeah in fact it's funny you mentioned that i'm i'm including that that video from i gotta figure out the name of it. it's curious inventor or something like that yeah um, they're the same people yeah curious inventor.com 
Yeah, Curious Inventor is the people who do the quick chip stuff. Oh, are they? they yeah, mm-hmm. amazing video on soldering. I'm actually going to link to it in my laptop repair videos because I was going to do a video on soldering, and then I saw that. Right. And I, and like, I said, it's kind of hard to improve, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's hard to improve that. It's perfect. So yeah, um, they they, they are great. And I'm looking at the slideshow you you created here for your your Freaknik presentation. Um, and where can they get that again? So if they want to follow along with this podcast, you could actually follow along with some of the slides we're talking about. Yeah, if they go to uh, myharddrivedive.com, and then the easiest way is on the menu. There's a presentation page, and you, so you hit presentations. And at the top of the list, it'll say current speaking events, and you'll see Freaknik 13 right there. And when you click on it, it'll have all the information about it, and there's a PDF at the top. And so if you click on it, we're around page 67, 68 yes. um, in, our, in the slides here. So, And uh, the previous uh, podcast that we did, we talked about the first 60 slides. Right. So, so if you want to go back and look at that one, then it's the continuation of the same thing. Yeah, it might be easier for you to follow along if you're listening and, and watching those slides. And I'm looking right now at slide 68 where – is that your desoldering station, the, the yeah, air? Yeah, that's actually an air desoldering station. And what there is, it's a little hard to tell by the picture, but there's a tube above and a tube below. And so hot air will be pumped into those two tubes from each side, and it will basically bombard – the, the PCB, the, the printed circuit board, with air from both directions. And so what I do is you'll see there's a PCB board, but underneath the PCB board, there's a piece of metal. Mm-hmm. And that metal has holes cut in it. And uh, this particular one actually came off the bottom of an old Seagate hard drive, and it had these squares in it where the chips were. And it happened to be the right size, obviously, because this is a PCB board. Um, and so what I do is I put the chip over the location where that hole is so that I'm not exposing the rest of the board to all the heat. And I'm only exposing just the chip or the area of the chips from each side that I need to. And when you put flux around the chip, it kind of seeps through the holes a little bit, and the flux will help the heat from both sides make it kind of boil really quick, making the solder loose almost right away. And you can just pick the chip right up. Huh. So like after about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes, before before the board will start to melt, you'll be able to remove this chip. Just, yeah, I wanted to ask you, because on the top part of this, it, lo- it looks like you're just blowing air onto this thing, but then I didn't know that there was a tube on the bottom. Yes, okay. there's a tube on both sides. Yeah, so because you, well, you need to... A lot of people are doing... The reason I bring it up is a lot of people are doing trying to do that type of repair on a DV6000 HP laptop. They're having lots of problems with the motherboard, and a lot of guys are trying to reflow the solder on the chips, and right. they're melting their boards down because, like you're doing here, you got to put a piece of metal or some kind of like aluminum foil or something at least, right? And then a hole, yeah. a hole in that where the chip is. Otherwise, you start melting everything well, off the board. There actually is heat resistant tape. They have heat-resistant tape, and you can buy this heat-resistant tape and, like, tape it around the board or in the areas you don't want to get melted, and it will protect that area. But one of the reasons that their boards are probably melting is that they're a little impatient. They're not going to sit there because they're probably using um, the air the air heat guns that yes. you can buy for, like, $17 at Home Depot or something. Right. Exactly. So those will work, but the thing is, what you really should do is you should mount them some way, like on a on a two by four or something, so that they're an exact distance apart. You could take two of these seventeen dollar things probably and aim them at each other, and then you know put your board in between it. And the thing is, you want to do the heat slow enough that it might take a minute and a half or two minutes. But I think they're probably impatient, so they're probably moving this gun up and down and getting really close to the board until it tries to melt so they can try to get this thing off. Right. But the trick is to let the heat, the hot 
air seep kind of into the flux and into the chip. Maybe they're not even using flux because that's the other problem. If you don't use flux, um, you know, it's kind of like boiling water. It it, it really kind of sits around it and makes it all loose. I see. And so they really need to use flux. And some people might be afraid to put flux on their board because they're afraid it'll damage it. But the flux has no resistance. It doesn't It doesn't really do anything. You can clean it off really quick with alcohol. Huh. Yeah, and if you want to see really how to use flux, watch that the video. It's called How to Solder Correctly. And uh, I'll have it in the laptop repair videos, but you could also see it at, at, uh, on YouTube if you just type in how to solder correctly. Um, next, next slide is complex soldering. When you have like a really fine soldering iron here. Yes, uh, I have a very fine soldering iron, and this particular picture was taken with a microscope. I have a 95X microscope, so I have this full-size microscope where I'm uh, able to see each pin, each leg on the chip itself. And so if you're going to do something very complicated, trust me when I tell you that unless you get a microscope, and, and you don't have to buy a real expensive microscope. There's like you know 35X microscopes that you can probably pick up for – um, I mean, $300 or so. But if you're going to do a lot of this kind of soldering, um, you just have to trust me when I tell you there's so much you can't see that hmm. you think you see and that you think you can resolder until you actually get a microscope and look at it. And your whole opinion about how this works will change. Wow. Um, and so, you know, most of the magnifying glasses that you use that would be for electronics and stuff, they don't go that high. They only go like, you know, I think one of the highest I've seen is like 5X. And so... You really need to get like 25 or 35x okay. in order to be able to see um, the legs of the chip correctly and to to see all the resistors and stuff around it. Okay, good to know. And and this these are very in depth repairs, by the way. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys are going to be resoldering chips, but if you do want to know, I mean, these are great slides yeah. and great info about it. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that you know, even though it seems like, oh, do you want to go and spend three hundred or four hundred dollars on a? And I'll tell you, the easiest thing is if you go to eBay and you get a a, a four hundred dollar or three hundred dollar microscope uh, from AM Scope. If you just do a search for AM Scope, there's a, a a lot of great scopes out there that will be you know fairly cheap. But if you really think about it, if you're going to do some electronic soldering. Just just by buying a good soldering gun and a microscope, you could probably pay for it just one or two times of doing hmm. some kind of repair. Right. Because it's very easy to send off something to be repaired, and it costs you a thousand dollars or two thousand right. dollars. Or, you know, how many times have you broke off off of a USB memory stick? You broke the little clip off the end of the USB memory stick. Yes. Where, you know, those things come loose all the time. Yes. And they're very difficult to see. They're very small, but under a microscope, they're very obvious. Are you, are you talking about the actual port, the USB port that you... Yeah, uh, where it's, it clips onto the board. Yeah, a lot of times yeah. you'll put some pressure on it and right. the little pins will just pop off. Right. And so you can resolder those fairly easily yourself. But sure. if there happen to be some data on there you want, instead of sending it off to somebody that's going to cost you $600 or $800, you could right. pay for it with just one time. Good point. All right, next thing we're going to talk about is motors spinning in the hard drive. And this was the first hard drive I actually attempted to repair where I actually took the whole thing apart. It was because a motor stopped spinning. And I'm like, I'll just take this apart and start spinning the motor again. And I ended up like just grabbing the platters and taking mm. them apart. And I had no clue what I was doing. In fact, it was yeah. so bad, I gave it back to him without any platters in. And I said, yeah, you know, I tried everything I could and I couldn't get the data back off of this thing. And uh, I had to throw the platters out. And he, he flipped out on me because I, I didn't know he'd be savvy enough to know that all the data was stored on the platters. <laughs> but uh, he <laughs> okay. said, well, why did you do that? I could have sent it off to somewhere. And then I'm... 
you know, I'm thinking about it and uh, it was before I knew about you, Scott. <laughs> I probably would have sent it off to you if I knew that. But that was the first hard yeah. drive I took apart because the motor was, he dropped it and the motor got stuck. So right. what do you do in well, that case? Well, you, you know, the first thing is, is that um, obviously the, the motor, if you have to deal with the motor, the whole point is going to be, can I do anything without having to open the case? Right. And so uh, what, what slide 71 really is, is actually a short video showing what's wrong with a motor spinning. Um, and you don't see that in the PDF, obviously, um, right. but it, uh, it spins very slowly. So the heads will never dismount. So what I was trying to show is that rather than open this drive and trying to screw with taking the platters out and moving them to another thing, that uh, there there is a special tool, which is in the slide 72, that you could use if you had some bearings that were stuck. But more importantly, I, I want to try to do something without opening the drive right. if I think that it moves, but it's moving really slow and it's squealing and it's got some other problem. So that's where I attack it from the bottom. So you'll see in slide 73 and 74 that what I actually did was I figured out where I could solder a, or, or drill a small hole and drop in a drop of either WD-40 or a drop of oil. Are you and, serious? Yes, and, and you would be amazed at how often this actually works because you cannot get at the motor without removing the platters. Right, and once right. you remove the platters, you're actually going to be messing with the alignment. So if you have an option and there is a way to make it turn – that you could just take a Dremel or something that you can just sand down the bottom of this little piece of metal that's on the bottom of the drive till you create just a big enough hole. Now, don't go overboard because uh, right underneath that, obviously, is the the coils themselves. And if you puncture one of the coils, you're not gonna you're not gonna make it through. It's gonna it's gonna destroy the drive, and you will end up having to move the platters. But if you're able to make a very small hole and puncture it, not get any metal inside, you'll be able to do like I'm doing on slide. Um, uh, 75, I actually just took a drop of oil and put one drop of oil inside the drive and it spun back up perfectly. Um, now, obviously I've, I've introduced, you know, a lot of issues here for long-term use, but for yeah. data recovery itself, I copied the data off and I'm done. I can't believe uh, this. I can't believe you drilled a hole there. If you, yeah, you guys I, have to see these slides. You have to get download this, this PDF. This is amazing. Now, you know, one of the things is I knew where to drill the hole. Because I had previously, because this is one of the tricks, don't take apart your customer's drive to play with it to do kind of what you already did with your platters. But, <laughs> uh, but I already had another that I had taken apart, and I knew the spacing between the two coils. Right. So I could drill a hole right there and not touch the coils and get through. Um, but it would be smarter in most cases to use a Dremel with a little sander on it and just sand down the metal until you just barely are touching and puncturing the area so you can get some oil in it. Oh, and so you don't have the drill bit going in there and messing right, things up. Right, exactly. See, I knew where the spacing was on this one, so I was safe and it was quick. Uh, a Dremel will take you, you know, another 15, 20 minutes to actually get it smoothed down right. so that you're actually sanding through the bottom. I see. Very interesting. So, but you know, it's one of the options. It's not going to work every single time. And you know, there are some problems with some Seagate drives where the whole spindle casing itself actually comes off, and you can't just. I mean, it's kind of like they're almost free floating inside the drive, but you can't remove them, and they just don't come out easily because of the spacers. Um, so, it, it, there are times it won't work. Right. But obviously, this is an option. This this particular thing works really well on. Uh, IBM hard drives, the uh, Hitachi hard drives. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of times you'll have these Hitachi hard drives that kind of scream at you when you turn them on. Right. And this will fix most of those drives. Wow. Really neat. Really neat. 
you make every time I talk to you, it makes me want to go back and buy my shop back again and start doing work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you could just start up a data recovery company. You don't have to get your shop back. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be competition for you. <laughs> uh, nobody's competition. I'm good with everybody being there. <laughs> That's because you're so much better than. <laughs> well, there's plenty of work to go around too, and you know a lot yeah. of it has to do with marketing. There's a lot of people who will never hear about me who will hear about you. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to send business someplace. <laughs> you can sometimes do it yourself. <laughs> good call. And don't act like you don't try to do that. Like uh, somebody brings in a hard drive, the first thing you do is plug it in and see if you can read the data before you even think about sending it off. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. See. Oh, yeah, totally. If I could do it, I would probably do it. Yeah. All right, what are these PC board, uh, PCB boards here? Well, what I was trying to do is display that, okay, let's say that the motor doesn't turn at all. Okay. And, and, but you don't know why. You don't want to just open it and spin the platters to see if, because the more you open it, the you know, more you're introducing problems. Right. So how do you know that the board's not fried? Because the board has a motor control chip on it, and if that board gets fried, you might not see it. So what I was showing here is that there's this set of pins in the lower right-hand corner mm -hmm. on the board. And in this lower right-hand corner where those pins are, that's the part that actually touches the head assembly. You could have two boards that are completely you know, not completely different, but they look similar, but have different settings on the board. So they might have different voltages and things like that, but they're not a match. The, mm -hmm. the two boards, you could have two drives that look similar, but they're not a match. Rather than destroying it, let's say you say, well, look, my motor doesn't spin, and I don't know if I buy another board if the motor is going to spin or if it's a board problem or what kind of problem it is. So you could test a board from another drive that's not exactly the same as long as you cover those pins in the bottom right-hand corner. Because those pins will talk to the head assembly and there's a possibility of them blowing uh, what's called a preamp because the voltages might be wrong. Right. So if the boards don't match, all you're really trying to do is supply power to the motor itself. And if you notice on the back, on the back of the board, which is towards the top of the, um, the slide, those four pins are pretty much the same for most drives that are the same speed. And so all you really want to do is touch those four pins and apply power to the board. And if the motor spins up, then it's a pretty good indication that what you have in your hand, the one that you swapped from, might just be a board problem and nothing else. I see. So you're taking a board from another hard drive, and you're just putting power from that board to the motor of the broken hard drive. Exactly. I see. And just trying to get the motor to spin. This right. way you're going to try to determine if the board is bad or not. Right. My big hint, though, is to cover those pins that are on the bottom right-hand corner so that you don't touch contacts. You don't make any contact with the drive. Uh, if you go down one more slide, you'll see it below it. Uh, so on slide 77, yeah. those pins right there, those are very sensitive to the head assembly. And there is no other contact between the right. head assembly right. and the motor. Right. So if you just cover those with a piece of paper when you screw the board back on, you're protecting your drive and you're only going to touch the motor. I got gotcha. you. So some boards might fit onto the – if you get a board from another hard drive, it might actually – you're saying it might actually fit onto the broken yes. hard drive. But, it, of course, it's not going to be match up exactly, but you want right. to just cover those pins. So you don't have to do any soldering. You, right. You don't have to do any soldering here, but the whole point is to test the motor so that you right. can say – hey, I know it's a motor, so let me go right by the right board. Go by, because you're going to look mm -hmm. for drives that are that are similar, that the firmware right. is the same and that right. you you know you have a, the same components. Right. Um, 
because you know that's that's the obvious trick is that you know you can't because I, I get this kind of question sometimes and it just kind of it sounds insane to me because I've been doing it for so long. But you know people who'll say, well, I've got this you know forty gig Western Digital drive. Can I take the platters out and put them in a you know a sixty gig Quantum and read off of it? Right. Like no, you can't. <laughs> you have to have the exact same drive with the exact same components with the same board and the same firmware. Otherwise, you stand a chance of not being able to do the recovery or further destroying the data. Right. So this was just my way of having a way for you to test your motor easily before you go to eBay and buy one. Because there's nothing worse than spending $200 on a board or a drive and then it not being the right one. Exactly. No, it's a great thing. I didn't even think about doing that. That's a great idea. Um, now, what do we got here with the motor's dead? Move the platters. The... Um, Okay, so I didn't remove the pliers. This is the one that's upside down. So uh, you're on slide 78 because the, the drive is upside down. And I took one board that was fried, that the motor, the motor control chip is fried. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have an exact replacement. But the, the rest of the electronics worked fine. So I took another board that did not match, that had nothing to do with this drive, right. and I soldered the wires on directly to the motor, right. and then I put the other one on. Right. I put the actual board back on so that the pins on the bottom actually then made contact. Oh, so the board that's okay. responsible for spinning the platters is not the same board as the board that's actually controlling the head assembly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to do, and it doesn't work for a lot of drives. But every once in a while, you get lucky when you have something like this before you. you know, usually, you would end up soldering the chips, but if you couldn't solder them for some reason, and I, I couldn't in this board, um, then I had to use the two in combination. And ah, very neat. That's interesting. That's what I, that's what I was talking about when I said soldering. I thought you were soldering just to get the motor spinning. I thought you were. I didn't know what you meant by cover up those pins, covering up those pins. But then then it made sense to me. You're actually screwing a uh, circuit board from another hard drive onto that one, just covering up the pins, but giving power to the motor. Right. And in this one, you're actually soldering to the motor from another circuit board. Yeah, because when I put the other circuit board on top of it, I won't have access to those pins. Right. Uh, right. So I can't take two and glue them together right. easily. So I can supply <laughs> power now to both of those boards right. um, just by looping it through. That's very cool. All right. Want to go through the rest of the slides here? Sure. Um, so, so the next part is all about, well, if you do have to move platters that you need the special tool, and this is kind of the indication of either where to stop or where to spend a lot of money. Um, because this particular multi-platter tool, uh, comes as a bench kit and it's going to cost around $600 for this bench kit. Okay. Um, and a lot of practice. So, you know, you don't go doing this move platters all at once without having, um, some practice <laughs> at the same time. So it's a tool that will remove remove platters from a hard drive. Yes. Uh, it, its whole point in life is to grab multiple platters at the same time wow. and hold them together because if you spend two platters independently, so if your drive has two or three or four platters mm -hmm. and you remove those screws and the platters turn, yeah. then they're misaligned. And as soon as they're misaligned and those platters do not know the data above and below – it's not a match anymore, and it's impossible to get them back. It's this, almost this will keep them aligned to the degree. It actually is that accurate. Yeah, it's uh, it does it all by pressure. So you're actually clamping it on before you remove the screws, and then when you remove it, they're never turning, and so you're going to go straight to the destination drive and put them in. It's amazing. So it holds them all in in a perfect alignment while you're moving it. Where does he get? But, where do you get that tool? Um, there's only companies in China that sell these. There is no companies. There is one company in India that makes a similar tool. It doesn't look exactly like this. 
the two companies that sell these uh, devices to move the platters, one is called uh, HDRC Online, um, and they're out of India, and the other company is called Salvation Data out of China. Those are the only two companies I know that sell devices for removing platters and aligning platters. Okay. Yeah, very interesting tool. Hope I hope it comes with extensive instructions. <laughs> Not too much, really. Actually, really? Uh, I pretty much do the training for it, so uh-huh. that's about as good as it gets good. from that standpoint. Yeah, you can't get better than that. All right, so that that would be how to remove platters. Now, you would do that if your motor is dead, and you want to replace the motor. Can you replace motors in hard drives? You can, but they're, it's kind of pointless to do that because you need a motor already. So if you're going to do that, then why remove the motor from the other drive? Just move your platter because you've already got to remove your platters right. to take, take the motor out. So all you need to do really is just move your platters to the other drive. Okay. And so you just go straight to the other motor rather than do them. But there are, there are tools for fixing motors. I just don't bother to do it. It's just easier to move to the other drive. That makes sense. So, and then the next slide after that one's pretty much the other options. What the other things that you would hear, you know, is it, you know, do you hear phasers? Do you have these TVS chips? I think we talked about those before and then electronics and stuff. So it's just kind of backing that up. But uh, at the same time, I'm kind of also going through the next steps, which is, you know, what kind of sounds does your drive make? Right. And there's a lot of people that are concerned about, well, I don't know if my drive is scratched and I don't want to open it because I don't have a clean room or something like that. Right. And so uh, so you'll see on one of the next slides here, on uh, I'm kind of moving down to slide 85. Sure. So on slide 85, you'll see a head has scratched the platter and it has left this dust that is so thick that it actually made an imprint of the head assembly and the platters back on the lid. So this is the lid taken off, and you can actually see so much powder and dust from the drive being scratched that you can actually see the imprint in the lid itself. Wow. So my point is is that if you have something like this and you don't want to spend money on a donor drive or go through the problems of repair or paying somebody, there's a way without opening the hard drive to tell in most cases whether you've got a scratch. And that's the silver label on, this, on the right-hand side. If you go down to slide 87 mm-hmm. – You'll see this is the side of a, a Western Digital Drive. Yeah. And on the right-hand side, you see this silver label, which is a, you know, warranty's void if you move this label or whatever. But it's a, it's a tiny hole that they use for alignment of the head assemblies and stuff when they're reassembling this device. Okay. And uh, if you just peel this label back, mm-hmm. it's, gonna, it's going to expose very little air. But what will end up happening is you'll see right off the bat in the silver. And if you look on the next slide, what it looks like after you've peeled it back. If you've got this black powder and this black dust, like in the previous lines I showed, it will stick to the label. And when you peel it back, you'll be able to see just from the outside edge that there's a lot of black dust. And you already know that your platters are scratched and that you don't really necessarily need to spend a lot of money if you see this this bad of damage. So you that even though that sticker wasn't meant for that, you can you could use that as an indicator whether your platters are scratched. Yeah, uh, that's that's kind of the idea is that it is a sticker, and the center of the sticker is still sticky. And so the, yeah. the dust that's going to come off the drive is going to stick to that label. Neat. And, uh, and so oh, that's, right, that's an easier way to just check the drive out without even breaking out a screwdriver. Right. To just make sure that, you know, if you hear a grinding sound or something and you're not sure if it's a head assembly you want to replace or you want to send it off to a data recovery company, you can, you know, take a peek at this and 
not do any real damage by peeking at it. But well, you know, what, if you see, what if you see dust in there? Are you just is it screwed all the way around? Could you even fix yeah, that? Yeah, I. You know, the more damage that you have, the less likely the situation is going to be for recovery. And so you're, you know, even even some black dust is going to drop your percentage down to like twenty percent of a chance that you're going to recover anything. I see. So usually, what ends up happening is when you've got a lot of damage like that, it usually means that not only is there damage to the platter, but your head assembly is also damaged too. So you're going to be replacing at the bare minimum the head assembly. Huh. And you may have to do it several times, many times to actually read the data because as soon as the head hits this place again, it's going to continue to damage it. Oh, man. So you start all over again. And so I've done drives where I've had to replace the head assembly four and five times before I got any data back. But those are not ideal situations and they're very time-consuming. And so... Typically, it's going to be a very expensive process because you're looking five times is going to take about eight hours. Wow. Just replacing head assemblies. What is the, I mean, you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but I'm curious now that we're talking about what is like the most, the hardest job that you ever had to do? And I'm assuming it would be the one that costs the most. How much was somebody willing to spend? Let's put it this way. How much was somebody willing to spend to get their information back? Um, well, I've had some that, you know, everybody just claims it's completely priceless. They'll pay $10,000, $12,000 to do a recovery. But uh, the hardest ones are um, RAID 0 arrays where somebody just kept adding drives to a RAID 0. I've had a 14-drive RAID 0. <laughs> and so – and you know, one drive dies in that, you're already detrimental. But this particular RAID array, there was two drives that were dead. It probably took me three or four weeks of just like continuing to work on these to keep them going because I was able to repair a lot of the drive yeah. to get the data off of it. Yeah. But what would happen is, is that as you were reading data, when it would get to a spot where there was a damaged sector or something that previously existed, the data didn't come off correctly because it didn't process correctly. And, uh, and it would just crash basically oh, every man. time it would hit that. So I could restart it and then skip that sector or that file and go to the next one. And eventually I was able to figure out which files were corrupt one at a time. Jeez. And yeah. But you got the information back for that person? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got it back. And, uh, and you know, he sent me a nice uh, bottle of uh, vodka and stuff afterwards. But, you know, it was I probably needed the vodka while I was doing it because it was very <laughs> yeah, – you're here for hours and hours doing this, this <laughs> job. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Is that the end of the slides? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, there's only one additional slide that I kind of have down there, which is this whole picture of the space shuttle drive. Yeah, what's which that? Is the, so, so this is the drive. Uh, see, OnTrack sends out all this marketing material, and they, they like to claim that there's this space shuttle hard drive that they recover. And I'm not saying they didn't recover from it. I'm just saying that uh, I'm not sure that it was this picture is exactly the picture of the hard drive they say they recovered. And the reason I say that is I did this blow-up area of the chip blow you see this chip that's kind of sticking off yeah well it was just it was just sitting there in the case and so if this is the picture that they said they walked up and they saw the space shuttle there if if you really took and it's a little blurry in this picture but the legs of this chip were were unsoldered hmm. they are completely clean they were like unsoldered so that kind of brought into you know question when i'm looking at this thing it kind of looked like a setup like you know here's some chips and threw them into a hard drive and and that's the picture they took. Damn, so they li I completely lied. Well, at the marketing material, like I said, I'm just saying that's what I see. I, I'm, you know, it's just my opinion that, you know, maybe the chip or whatever at least was just kind of thrown into the case. But uh, it's it's unlikely that this was exactly the situation. <laughs> that's 
pretty sneaky of them. Yeah, it's marketing material. You know how that is. <laughs> All right, is there anything else we have to go over on these slides? or No, that's pretty much the, the rest of the stuff is just, you know, pictures and links to websites. All right, well, let me, uh, let me read one question from a listener, and then we'll go to the MHDD thing, and then we'll end off. Um, Blaine writes, and this is one I didn't run by you, Scott, so we'll just, we'll just wing it here. He, he just asked a question for you. He says, does harmonic vibration, when drives are racked up together, cause performance degradation in modern hard drives, especially in RAID configurations? I would venture to say no, and the the reason I say that is because um, you know typically the idea is the head's not supposed to touch the platter, the platters are spinning at a particular speed, and the drive knows how fast they're spinning, and it actually accounts for how how to make adjustments for the drive depending upon its environment, mm-hmm. and so it's supposed to be adjusting itself for its for the particular environment. If you are seeing any kind of really you know bad damage or whatever you know a head is hitting a platter or something um you know there's there's always a chance that the amount of heat or something from all the drives being next to each other is causing some expansion of some metal that might cause a problem but not really harmonics i don't really see where the vibration of the small amount is probably what's going to cause you know some degradation in performance Mm -hmm. um I, i don't really have any numbers to back it up i guess i could probably try to run some tests someday to see but there is like i can actually and i have actually done this where you're reading data and you take the hard drive and you can actually see it as it's reading the data you can see it in um uh, like an oscilloscope, I can see in an oscilloscope what the head assembly looks like as it's reading data. And if you pick up the drive and you turn it, mm-hmm. you'll actually see it have an effect on the speed at which the oscilloscope shows that the data is being read. Huh. And so you can see that fairly obvious. And it's really easy to see, like if you took it and you just picked it up like two inches and dropped it on the table, two inches, yeah. you'll actually see the same kind of thing. You'll see the spike where all of a sudden, you know, the head assembly is not reading anything. So it's plausible that it could happen, but I wouldn't think that in a working rate array in the rack-mounted situations that they're typically in, right. that the small amount of vibration is going to cause that big of a, 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 an issue unless they're, you know, on a roller coaster or yeah, something. Right, it's constantly <laughs> moving. He, yeah. he says, do you suggest mounting hard drives in some type of vibration isolation method? Well, it certainly can't hurt, but I mean, keep in mind that we've had like SCSI hard drives around for 30 years and, you know, we've gotten better with the type of rack mounts and stuff that we have now, but, you know, they've existed for that long without really having major problems. Right. All right. Good. That answers it. Thanks for the question, Blaine. And then the next one is, oh, I lost it. Let me pull it up real quick. Is that the one about comparing Spinrite to... My hard drive, the MHDD software. Yeah, yep. So, so, so the question was, is that, um, you know, what does what does MHDD do in comparison to what Spinrite is doing, and you know, which is better for for what it's doing? Because uh, there's a remap function, is what it was called, a remap function that's inside of the MHDD software. Right. Now, MHDD, you know, let's kind of backtrack here. Is that the MHDD software is free. It comes from HDD Guru. And MHDD software is for doing some simple diagnostics on drives. And you can do certain things like um, scan and repair sectors. And it has this function that's called remap. And the purpose of remap is when it's reading sectors, if it has to do multiple retries on a sector that's slow or is having a problem and it's successful at reading the data, then it remaps it to the bad block sector. So in other words, it says, I read my data, 
I was successful. And rather than continuing to just leave it there and say that you're okay, let's move that because it was really slow and was time consuming. And it really should be a bad sector. But I read the data. I'm going to read it and write it to this bad block uh, location, the reallocation table for where bad blocks were written. And then mark that one as bad. And so that's what the remap function does is it's kind of a semi- I'm repairing you because you weren't responsive. You were a bad sector. Right. Bad sector. Right. It's a it's it's you know either already a bad sector or it's the I'm about to be a bad sector. Okay. Um and so Spinrite uh and it's typically one of the things that you know their biggest claim is is that okay fine we can bring drives back from the dead. And that's what their point is is that they are trying to do the same function. They're trying to read the sector, but instead of using the normal functions inside the drive, which is obviously why it failed, mm -hmm. they're going to try 20,000 different ways in running code to move the head to and from different locations on the drive to read these bad sectors. And so sometimes what happens is, because uh, a drive normally reads sectors going forwards, it's, it's very rare, at least from a standpoint of um, you know, the caching mechanisms and the other stuff in the drive, that it's reading it backwards. Mm -hmm starting at the inside sectors of the drive and moving its way to the outside edge. Okay. Um, so the point is is that, that Spinrite tries to run these different algorithms for recovering this data by trying to move this head around these certain areas where it couldn't read a sector before. And so um, there are different functions. There are other pieces of software that do a similar thing to what Spinrite does. Um, so there's one from Media Tools Pro, which they call it a cycle reverse. And so cycle reverse basically says, well, I tried this way and it failed, so now I'm going to try it from a different direction and I'm going to read that. And if I'm able to read it one of those ways, I'll be successful and I will remap it so that I don't have that, that problem in the future. And so I think that you will find that in Spinrite and in Media Tools Pro that you will have more, comple more complex read algorithms than you will have with, say, MHDD. MHDD being a free product um, and being kind of at the end of its development cycle because the, uh, the inventor of the tool um, basically has gone on to produce a hardware product called the Atola Insight. And so my guess is, is that he's looking at his income and looking at his future being this product and not really spending a lot of time going back and working on MHDD. Huh. So his more advanced features will be in the product as opposed to uh, the free product free tool that's out there. I see. So, uh, so, but again, um, when you're doing these remap functions, they're, keep in mind that they're writing the same data back to the same drive. Right. So, um, now, Media Tools Pro doesn't do that. Media Tools Pro reads and clones to another hard drive, hmm. and it does these cycle reverse functions while it's reading the hard drive. So I would say it's probably more advanced than Spinrite from that standpoint because it's advanced features from that standpoint are at least putting it on a different destination drive. Right. I, I hate that Spinrite does it on the same drive or that they don't give you an option. Um, I would just, I think I've said this before, is that I would love it if it was just, hey, you have a destination drive, can we write these sectors there? If they just gave you the option I, I just think that would be so much better than what they're doing. Yeah, I've, you're not the first person that's that's I've heard say that. So, but you're saying those Spinrite's remap functions are a little more complex and probably better than MHDD. Yeah, I believe that's probably a true statement. Okay. And and there may even be a battle between what Media Tools Pro does and Spinrite 
spin writes functions may be more complex than even Media Tools Pro. I have no easy way to confirm that. Right. I, don't, I haven't seen the code, so right. I don't know from that standpoint. But uh, uh, typically, Media Tools Pro is successful where SpinWrite is as well. And uh, obviously, I want the advanced feature to be write this to another destination disk and not to my same disk. Gotcha. So there's a big price difference, though, between those two products. And so that's kind of another downside to why Media Tools Pro might not have overtaken the market where, where SpinWrite is. Gotcha. Okay, good. Well, you know what? Let's God, let's uh, let's save. And sorry, sorry, uh, Sammy, who asked this question. He he would he, the first part of that email was I was wondering if it would be possible to do a show on using MHDD properly. For example, what the various flags mean. Well, I kind of out of time for today, but I, why don't we start off next show with going over certain uh, functions of, of MHDD, and I'll, I'll see if I get any more questions from our listeners in the meantime about it. And then maybe we could fill, either fill a show with MHDD stuff or uh, at least, you know, do like the first part or half of it about that. Yeah, no, that would be fantastic. I actually have documented all the all the different features and what those flags are. And so it will be, I'll even try to put up some slides or something somewhere where people can download the stuff I've written on it. Oh, that'd be great. And, um, well, Scott, can, are you doing any uh, conferences, speeches? Uh, where can somebody see you if they want to see you in the, in the near future? And uh, where can they contact you if they just want to uh, sign up for your course? Well, uh, starting Friday this week, I'm actually teaching in D.C., so I'm going to be um, – I'll be leaving already, and so that class is already full for uh, D.C. And then, uh, and then I'm off, obviously, for Christmas and, uh, and, and most of January. So the next big thing is going to be ShmooCon. ShmooCon is in February. Um, if you haven't heard of ShmooCon, it's a uh, it's kind of spelled weird. It's a S H M O O ShmooCon, and uh, you can go to ShmooCon.org or whatever. But if you do a search for it, you'll find it's a security conference, and I'm going to be speaking there in the first weekend of February. Okay. Um, Where so is that's that? next. Um, it's in DC. Okay. Uh, so you'll see a lot of, uh, you know, the ticket sales are limited for ShmooCon, so they usually only have 1,200 tickets, and they usually sell out fairly quickly, but you'll find some eBay places and stuff selling huh. them. But it's one of the most fantastic cons that there is, really good information, um, and I'm happy to be a speaker there again. That's great. Um, um, and then in Atlanta, um, for those listeners who are, you know, kind of planning, well, hey, I want to tri- take a trip and have a good con and not spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, in Atlanta, March 20th, we're going to be having one called Outer Zone, and it's going to be a, a one-day event, um, and I will post something up on my website so people will know where it's at and stuff, but uh, so but it'll be on March 20th. It'll be a one-day speaking event. There'll be, you know, eight or ten speakers, and uh, we'll be given, you know, the best, the best talks that we can. Sounds awesome. I'm, I'm going to try to make it to a couple this year. That's my uh, new, new Year's resolution. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Scott. Um, we'll be in touch, and we'll try to get another podcast to, out to all you guys very shortly. Great. Thanks. Music for My Hard Drive Died is brought to you by Evan King, and you can find him at purevolume.com slash Evan King. He's got some great music over there. Check it out. You can download his songs for free, and I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>